Hello there. We're trying to keep Coral Chihuahua going, and so we draw your attention to the possibility of listening to us on Patreon for just a few quid a month. This also magically gets rid of the ads. That's Patreon with an E, patreon.com forward slash Coral Chihuahua. On with the app. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Call Chihuahua, and I'm having tea with Alistair Hume. <laughs> it's a countertenor thing. One of the original King Singers from the very start of the group in the late 60s for 25 years, Al, until 93. Man and boy. Yeah. And, and for people with a vaguer recollection of that time, perhaps people who go to websites or recording sites who didn't go the long way around and didn't see you there, which of the group were you? Gosh, which of the group was I? Second countertenor and somebody who really was kind of very much finding their way, I considered all the other five to be rather better singers than I was. So it kind of, that kind of coloured an awful lot of uh, what went on. I mean, there were certain things that I could do and an awful lot that I couldn't. Uh, so I tried to make the most of the things that I could do and um, get by on the things that I couldn't. That's good career advice for a start. Absolutely. Now, since you left the King Singers in 93, you have actually had a life, it's been said, and done things, noticeably as a, a father and a double bass player. And we're not really going to talk about that or even... this. I mean, this isn't even a history of the King Singers. I'm just interested in what it was like at the beginning and how you inspired a generation of people to engage with choral music, because I think that's pretty important with where we are in singing at the moment. The group's changed personnel many, many times. It's continued to work all over the world with a pretty breathtaking diary. And in many ways, it's been the gold standard for other vocal ensembles, solo voice ensembles, to be judged by. But we're going back in time to when I was only just aware of you and a song from an album called Lollipops that my dad had. But instead of the beautifully manicured studio version of this song, Widdicombe Fair... Uh, this is a live TV performance with an audience frankly close to hysteria at times. I mean, can you set it up? This was one of the golden collection of arrangements by a man called Gordon Langford, who had the ability to write for our particular combination of voices mm. and make us sound absolutely fantastic. It was a particular spacing of the cording without getting too technical, but the way he spaced particularly the bottom three parts. So the top three of us could sit on that really well. He was absolutely brilliant. And I guess what tended to happen was we would have the arrangement and then gradually develop and embellish and do all kinds of things with it over the years, which possibly maybe engendered the kind of hysteria you were talking about. But I do remember one particular performance in the hall in Bristol. Uh, so we had a, a lovely full hall and it was going absolutely terrifically well until somebody, I won't uh, mention any names here, um, forgot completely his next set of words. So there was a total dead silence and I can't remember who broke it first, either the audience or us, but for five or ten minutes, all of us, the audience and all of us on stage, were in absolute hysterics. We just, tears running everywhere. It was one of those things that catches you at the wrong moment. You know what I mean? And when it does, because you're up there exposed, it's so much worse and you just giggle all the more. Well, no giggling here except from, as I say, the slightly hysterical audience on the good old days. Tom Pierce, Tom Pierce, Lindoy the Grey Mare. Hold along, and along, out along, lee. 
was once for to go over to Widdicombe Fair with Bill Brewer. Beating Ernie. Harry O. Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. And when July see again the grey mare, all along down, along out, along lee. By Friday noon or Saturday soon, with Bill Brewer. Beating Ernie. Beating Ernie. Harry O. Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. When Friday came and Saturday noon, all along down, along and along Lee, but Tom's old mare had not trotted home. Peter Gurney, Peter Gurney, Peter Gurney, old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all, old Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Then Tom Pierce went up to the top of the hill, along and along Lee. Seed his own mare down making her will. Just beginning. <laughs> 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 When the wind whistles cold on the moor of a night, all Tom Pierce's old bear disappear, ghastly white. Old Uncle Tom Cobbley and Old Tom Cobbley, Old Uncle Tom Cobbley, and all the long night beard skirting and groans, all along, down along, out along from Tom Pierce's old mare and the rattling of bones. Jan Stewart, Peter Gurney, Peter Daly, Tom Whitten, Old Uncle Tom Cobbley, and 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 all. That's all. That is available on YouTube, should anyone want to look at the audience costumes, because everyone used to dress up, didn't they? Or to see the acting from the group, is that a fair word? I would put that in inverted commas, mm. I think, probably. We were once described as Madame Tussauds' mobile waxwork show. But the good old days, is a little, little cameo, before we got onto the good old days, we were booked to audition with Barney Colan, the producer. And it was a, obviously a fantastic show. Anyway, uh, I think the day before or two days before, I went into hospital with severe stomach pains. The group went ahead and auditioned and got the job. I wouldn't say these events are connected, but you never, you never know. Anyway, we had wonderful fun with that. The good old days. I mean, this is the sort of television we had to suffer in the 1970s, along with the black and white minstrel show, uh, Spike Milligan's Q series... Uh, you appeared on that, didn't you? We did. We did a couple of those, and there was an invariable theme to all of them. In one of them, everybody on the show wore a finger stall, which was very obvious. A, a what? A finger stall. That's a bandage round one finger. Okay. Supposedly to protect it. And in the other one, it was custard pies. And we sang a beautiful song, The Words by Spike. Alice in Wonderland. Alice in Wonderland. I saw it live when it happened, I right. remember. Well, you can imagine how hard it is to sing that last line, Alice in Wonderland, where are you now? My, you know, f faint longing into the distance. And you can see Spike and five of the studio lining up with custard pies, manic gleams in their eye, ready to pounce as soon as it finished. Alice in
Custard pieing on Radio 2. It was shaving foam, wasn't it? It wasn't actually custard pie. No, sadly not. Not nice. Because I adore custard. (laughs) (laughs) I I was a chorister at Hereford Cathedral, 1975 to 1980. But even before then, I was aware of you because my dad played your albums a lot. And for me, you were as much, in fact, much more part of the 1970s than the Osmonds, energy outages, let's reel them off, long hair and England being beaten by the West Indies. What was it like then? What was it like at the very start or even maybe just a few years in? You'd had that successful audition. I mean, you were part of light entertainment at the same time as doing serious programmes of magicals and commissioning new music. I think that the start of the whole thing is much probably much less organised than we would like to think these days in the sense that there was no great thing of saying, right, we're going to have a group, right, we're going to rehearse, right, we're going to be absolutely wonderful. I think to start with, we really um, didn't imagine that it, that it was a, a viable career. Mm. David Wilcox certainly thought it wasn't, advised Simon and me to stick to the day job. Um, which was law in Which was, uh, yes, and playing the double bass yeah. as well, because we, we both... Uh, in the late 60s, we were in secure employment with, a, with the BBC. So um, it, it was kind of a, a chancy thing. Nobody was doing this. And David Wilcox also was very sceptical about six men carrying a concert just by themselves in large concert halls. I don't think it was quite determined to prove him wrong, but it was just the fact that A, we enjoyed doing what we were doing, however little it was, and B, audiences seemed to enjoy it as well. So I kind of think we thought we put those two things together and said, well, you know, what about it? And I think we realised that we, it wouldn't work until we were all based in London, unfortunately. Mm. So we gradually all collected together in London and were there by 1970. We then rehearsed a huge amount. We were fortunate in gaining some very good uh, commissions from contemporary composers early on, Mm. people like Richard Rodney Bennett. And we uh, premiered that in the Queen Elizabeth Hall in our January concert. So that was kind of a a great Philip. And then the whole BBC light entertainment thing, you know, the good old days et al. Now, my listening habits were, like everyone else, formed by my parents to start with. So... Uh, in my particular case, often on just snatches of reel-to-reel tape rather than actually being able to to hear the full thing. Uh, Bits of Hoffnung, bits of Goon Shows, Oscar Peterson. Dad very keen on him whenever he appeared on TV. And I think I put you in the same bracket. Um, But what was the actual split of, you know, serious concert giving a full evening somewhere in Germany at a serious music festival and the sort of frothy events for, you know, singing at functions or doing a couple of light ones for Radio 2 or something? I think that because our concert programmes essentially consisted of both those extremes, if you care to call it that, in a way it wasn't a problem to devise a programme totally of one as opposed to the other. I would say that our programmes initially were probably rather more based on the serious side and it was only really the the very end, the last group of songs, where uh, we let what hair we had left down. I've seen the 1970s videos quite a lot, actually. <laughs> um, and then we people feel that the pendulum swung a bit too far over when we did all those BBC light entertainment shows in the 70s because if we went to the Fairfield Hall, for instance, which was, I think, very much a TV audience in those days and gave them uh, a lot of Talis Lamentations and Tudor music, they might feel that they stumbled into the wrong concert until we got to the last group. So it was always a bit of a toss-up, and we we thought long and hard about every programme as to how we should balance it. But I think in terms of being able to do a complete programme in a church, which would probably finish with some uh, wonderful spirituals, as opposed to a entertaining the foreign ministers of the EU or something, mm. um, we probably were able to devise a programme which you know, catered for all. As far as I knew at that time, there wasn't anything else like you guys. But in reality, of course, in the world of one-to-apart group reality, that is, there were, of course, other options. The Della Consort that had been started, you know, a good 15 years before, probably longer. Uh, the Scholars, they'd been around for a, for a while. 
Um, and now, in the 1970s, the consort of music, the specialist early music groups, Hilliard Ensemble, Inquires, Talis Scholars, Schutz Choir of London, and people listening will list others. Were you aware of how you fitted into that world, or was that just not really a thing? I'm, I'm not sure that we kind of ever asked that particular question. Most of us sang in other groups, sang mm. in the Schutz Choir, for instance, the Moliveri Choir, etc., and did those kind of things in the early days when there was still time to do other things. But then I think we got stuck into what we were doing. We certainly knew about um, all you know those other groups that you were mentioned. The Della Consort was a particular inspiration for us, really. I think we looked up to them big time, um, partly because of uh, Alfred Della and really his influence on bringing the countertenor voice, which both of us have reason to be grateful for, mm. um, out of the cathedral pews and glee clubs onto the concert platform. So I think when we thought we were fitting, we were just doing our own thing, and we hugely admired all these other groups, which we felt were doing their own thing extraordinarily well. I mean, the standard of people like the Schutz Choir, the Modiveri Choir, etc. You know, it was absolutely fantastically high. And I, I guess we probably wanted to be as good in our own particular field. But I think um, our, our field was just slightly different from theirs. So I'm not quite sure there was any fitting in uh, to be done, really. Well, let's hear a little bit then of that unmistakable sound of Alfred Della. <laughs> How should I your true love know? Ophelia's song from Hamlet. Unmistakable sound of Alfred Della. I don't know who the lutenist is. Desmond Dupre, do you think? It doesn't say. I would say more than likely. Yeah. What was the touring like? The touring. I, I would say for the most part, it was fantastic. Really interesting. The first tour we ever did was Australia, New Zealand, three months, 36 concerts. Oh gosh, that sounds like one of those cricket tours to Australia. <laughs> did you go out on a boat? Um, no, we flew. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, that, that, it's not the 30s. That, that was long enough. Um, and it started off on arrival in Auckland. We were we waited around for a rather long time and there didn't seem to be anybody there. And we weren't quite sure what the form was. But it turned out there was a Dutch group who'd just got off the plane before us. And our host approached them and obviously said something which they perhaps didn't quite understand in a heavy New Zealand accent, I don't know. And they just said, yeah. So they were hauled off with these people. Um, <laughs> anyway, the mistake was soon rectified. When someone tried to make them sing, <laughs> presumably. But we had, again, it was, I mean, it was a marvellous time. The uh, people were just so hospitable and kind. We had some fantastic concerts. We were taken around Sydney Opera House, which was being built at the time. Mm. We were, we did a concert, final concert in Darwin. Right um, in the north. Right in the north. 
and we were in a church which had a corrugated iron roof, no sides to it, uh, fans whirring in the ceiling which we uh, asked to stop because we were doing some fairly earnest Tudor music, Talis Lamentations. Yes. We were in full tales. The audience were in shorts and singlets <laughs> and three of them were carried out with heat stroke. So, you know, it was fairly stiff upper lip time. Um, but that was... And some of the friendships we made on that tour have endured, mm. uh, you know, since 1972. Mm. So it was really quite special. I think that um, the USA was an interesting one because... We started off with the same agent who had toured Alfred Della and the consort, and she was a wonderful woman, but she had, she was a one-man band. So her concert venues were her concert venues, and the way you travelled between them was entirely your affair. Oh, I see. So you would travel, you would do a concert, you would get up at five o'clock to catch a series of planes to the next place in another small town a thousand miles away, and then the following day, you'd fly back to within just outside the exclusion zone, 50 miles away from the place you were. Yes. So it was a bit, the word zigzag springs to mind. Yes. But then, um, so, and then we got with a very large agency called Columbia Artists, who had a huge spread, enormous number of outlets. But that was when something we were talking about earlier, the light side of the programme, we found ourselves really weighting the programme more and more to the lighter side because we realised that the kind of places we were going to, madrigal was not a word that was on everybody's lips every day. Mm. Um, we did a whole series of community concerts, which were a brilliant idea, and they were the idea was they would bring the community together once a month. But so we found ourselves singing between Peanuts Miller and his jazz men the previous week, and then two harps doing songs from the shows the next week. Yes. So it was quite a varied um, programme. And really, when we'd done three weeks of that, which was three tours of that, sorry, which was... It was slightly depressing, I have to say, because the people didn't really understand what we were doing. Um, we decided, OK, maybe America's not for us, so let's, you know, concentrate on the places which did enjoy and then fortunately, a very far-seeing choral director said, hey, guys, don't give up. Just give me your last tour and uh, let me see what dates you did. So we did. And she said, heavens, I can make 10 phone calls and I can get you six concerts in front of people who really know and appreciate what you're doing. Hmm. So we thought, nothing to lose. Hmm. And so the USA opened up for us. That's, that's pressure to do... Uh, to do projects that is, that is going to sell. I mean, it's something that hits... Well, is it something that hits all groups? Perhaps it isn't anymore because it's so difficult to sell anything at, at all. Um, and I suppose there's a, once you've gone down market, it's, it's difficult to go up again. But that's not true in the King Singer's case. But I'm thinking of, you know, Beatles recordings and, you know, I, I, I'd never heard of the Beatles until way after I'd heard of you. So I experienced the Beatles through King Singer's arrangements. Um, I mean... We're going to play a little bit of David Bowie's Life on Mars with you guys singing on it. Let's just, let's just play the track. It's a god-awful small affair To the girl with the mousy hair But her mother is yet no And her daddy has told her to go but her friend is nowhere to be seen Now she walks through her sunken dream To the seat with the clearest view And she's hooked to the silver screen But the film is a sanding ball For she's lived it ten times or more She could spit in the eye Show. Is the light on Mars? 
age 12, I knew nothing of David Bauer or the Beatles. I was just interested in how tenor Alistair Thompson was going to hit those top notes. And, and what beautiful enunciation. You can actually hear the text. Not something that pop music is known for. But Bowie fans will be screaming in protest, I guess. Do you remember that stuff, recording with the orchestras, or were you sort of separate from the orchestras? How did it work? Uh, I, I do remember it, and, and there were some, some fantastic... I mean, that particular track, Life on Mars, it got to number 48 in the Capital Radio playlist. So um, when that happened, we thought, ah, fame at last, yeah. we've broken it. I felt the same with the Studio 40 part right. mass. When it got to number 65 above Jimmy Somerville, <laughs> I thought, that's it, that's it's, my career. But they were fun, and kind of listening to those um, tracks with orchestra again, which is something I, I basically hardly ever do, um, I found myself thinking, much against my better judgment, gosh, th these are rather good. I think it was the arrangements and the orchestration, and so we kind of fitting in amongst them. And in fact, uh, one of our very early successful albums called Out of the Blue, which I think for which we got a silver, uh, silver disc, that had some, again, wonderful arrangements of uh, the, the Neil Hefty song Girl Talk. It's a fantastic arrangement. Uh, terrible words. I'm not sure one could sing that these days. It's all a bit, um, uh, you know, out of fashion. But there were some great arrangements. So we were starting to do that stuff as early as 1973. As time went on and I was a chorister and I became more aware of different types of music and perhaps as I as my voice broke and started thinking about singing, singing baritone, I became more and more drawn to three things in your world. One of them was being in a musical texture. Um, now, I never had a voice, I did as a boy, but I never had a, a voice as a, as a baritone or a countertenor that, that anyone wanted to pay money for it here on its own. But being in a musical texture, that was actually what I, I really felt intrinsically was more interesting. And it's more complicated than an instrumental ensemble because voices are so much more flexible than others with all our vowel sounds and so many more possibilities. So that was the first thing. The second thing was that within that texture, you were all completely individual, or you could be, certainly if we were looking at you. I mean, obviously, the, you know, the blend of the group was phenomenal. But your individuality was able to come out. I mean, we'd confess that we played at the top. That's a good example. And the third thing, I just keep coming back to this, it, it, was, it was entertainment. And through my career, I'd just become aware that as far as audience is concerned, entertainment can be a good thing. But if you're looking for reviews and if you're thinking of the sort of projects you might want to do, the people deciding about what programme they do or what programme they book for their venue, uh, oh, not necessarily so so keen. I, mean, I don't know, maybe I'm just seeing from a slightly jaundiced way, but it is what Ifagellini has ended up doing, trying to take 16th century music and look for the sort of entertaining side of it. Um, but, but one interesting way you did that was with contemporary music. Um, in 1978, you came to Malvern and I was there, age 12. My whole family went and my aunt and we all, all went. And the only thing I can remember from it was a very contemporary sounding thing called Timepiece, which was actually great fun. In fact, we're going to go straight into a... What, what, this is a TV programme about the group, was this, from a few years later? Yes, I think it was called Six Healthy Englishmen. And it, it featured timepiece, and I think, if my memory serves me correctly, which it very rarely does, um, we are filmed rehearsing it with Paul um, in, a, uh, in a house just outside Salisbury, uh, which belonged to somebody who was very helpful to the King Singers in the early days. working on a piece called Timepiece by Paul Patterson, who's seen here rehearsing it with us. It's really all about the creation of time and the way, in the end, everything goes wrong and uh, it gets so noisy it breaks down and we have to once more revert to uh, the silence that was there at the beginning. We're just at the early stages and you'll see it's got all kinds of various effects in it, not all vocal, um, but we've so far we've been quite enjoying ourselves with it. And Simon, could you have a slightly darker sound on that? Really sinister. <coughs> yes, make that a trip. Yes, yes. yes. I wanted to combine something which embraced all their styles. They range from very light music to the most modern avant-garde scores. And they 
had no pieces which perhaps embraced the two diverse styles, so I wanted to write something like that. Shall we go from Life Was Good? Life was good, all was well. Paradise was looking cool. you're wearing on your wrist. It's a watch. Some point about 1980, early 80s, you published a biography, a big red hardback book, which I must have been the first person to buy a copy of. And in it, do you remember what what you said was one of the hardest things you'd ever learned. You even printed a little bit of the manuscript. Gosh, was that not Penderecki, was it? Not at the time. It was Daryl Runswick. Oh, gosh, yes. And I think I know the piece you mean, um, which is an arrangement of what should be a fairly simple song, Obladi Oblada. And, and later on, you did, um, was it Bob Chilcott that did a much more sort of reggae-based um, uh, back to the original sort of thing. Correction, that second arrangement of Obladi Obladar was in fact by Grayston Ives, a tenor successor to Alistair Thompson in the group. Uh, and for geek knowledge, uh, he then became Informata Choristarum, the instructor of the choristers at Magdalen College, Oxford. But this, I mean, this was practically a piece of contemporary music, wasn't it? If you think of Berio doing Arone, Cries of London, you know, initially written for you, uh, it was almost musical theatre. I think there was everything in it that Daryl could possibly fit in. So there was, you know, Russian <clears throat> Kalinka, Cossack dance, uh, drinking song, and, um, as you say, uh, Berio. It, I mean, it was... He, he had the most inventive and fertile mind. Parts of it are recognisable as Obladi Oblada, and parts of it are just kind of going off at a complete tangent. Absolutely brilliant, the whole thing. But yes, very difficult to sustain a cappella and somehow finish sort of faintly in the same key at the end. The group very kindly gave me a score of it with Daryl's agreement many years later and we did it in Virginia as part of our 25th anniversary. Terrific fun, but here's your version from Lollipops. <laughs> Desmond has a barrow in the marketplace. Molly is the singer in a bag. Molly, 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 Molly. Desmond says to Molly, girl, I like your face. And Molly says this as she takes him by the hand. Molly says, la la, how the life goes on. Life goes on. No bloody, bloody, life goes on. La la, how the life goes on. Desmond takes a trolley to the jeweler's store, buys a twenty carat golden ring, but only five of a man who saw his fall over lorry. Takes it back to Molly waiting at the door. And as he gives it to her, she begins to sing. <laughs> <laughs> In a couple of years they have built a home sweet home. With a couple of kids running in the yard of Desmond and Molly. Desmond and Molly, 
is it really it's a recreation of the Beatles Obladi Oblada but you were doing I mean you you, you that year you had a, a BBC two primetime Sunday evening TV series I mean anyone listening to this involved in professional choral music now would drool at the idea of being given not I mean one-off program would be nice enough but this was a full series the Madrigal History Tour we're back at the, the Beatles again uh, that looked I mean, that just looked wonderful, going to all these wonderful places, possibly getting by, bitten by mosquitoes in Mantua, but otherwise... What's a mosquito between, you know, if you're there where Monteverdi was? <clears throat> I think that, um, and I can't remember the genesis of it, but I think a lot of credit should go to our agents at the time who managed to wangle it with uh, the B- you know, control of BBC Two. And th- so, as you say, it was a chance to go to all the great um, artistic centres of the Renaissance and to delve right into that and recreate it, bring it to life, sort of, uh, in vision and sound. And we had a huge amount of fun. I mean, to go to you know, a place where you can see Monteverdi's 1610 scrawled on a doorway by him back in the day. I mean, really wonderful. And also some absolutely beautiful places and chateaus in France... Uh, it was incredible, really. Um, we, we were very lucky. That was a kind of golden age of BBC doing large, uh, ambitious programmes. The BBC Light Entertainment u- Unit on the other side was producing dozens and dozens of really high-quality music shows. And we were fortunate to be able to ride on that with a series from Nana Muscuri, and one or two of our own shows. There are Flanders and Swan, songs you've seen in Miss Alliance. Yeah. And, and, and in yeah. fact, if people want to see a bit of the Magical History Tour, if you don't mind Korean or Japanese subtitles, um, there, there are plenty of little bits here and there. What, what are we going to hear from that? I think, uh, well, one, one of the pieces which was a real oddity for me <clears throat> was a piece called Il Gioco di Primiera by Strigio. Same Strigio, 40 yep. part Massimo, yes. And um, this is essentially a game of poker, but it's kind of, you know, 16th, 17th century poker um, called Primiera. The cards, I believe, are much the same. And what we used to do in concert, coming out of the Magical History Tour, was to sit down with a table and four chairs and play the game. It, It was absolutely wonderful. There are four players, but five singers. So clearly there's a bit of skullduggery going on. And indeed, I think, however often we played it, I usually won. <laughs> and there's some, there's some fairly strong swearing in Italian at the end, followed by a, a dance for the loser. Yes. Um, fortunately, I think most viewers' knowledge of Italian doesn't stretch to the more colourful language, which is thankful. Um, 
And then we do, yes, the old tippy-tap-tap-tap-tippy-tap-tap-tap as we possibly move on to the next place and con a few more people out of their savings. Alessandro Strigio's Gioco di Primiera. Uh, funnily enough, we have a companion piece by uh, Giovanni Croce from Venice in the 1590s called The Game of the Goose, uh, which is still played in England, not much, but played a lot on the continent. And we've just finished making a film of it that's coming out on, on Boxing Day. I don't think I'd, I think I'd seen you do it live, but the piece that I remember above all from that series is the Jeannequin, La Guerre or La Bataille, one of these sound effect pieces. And I just thought, that's amazing. And I, I went to try and find it, of course, couldn't find it anywhere. And then by the time I left school, I was working in Birmingham for a year and I went into the Birmingham Library and they had, not in any sense a set of part books, but just an edition in C-clefs. And I studiously wrote the whole piece out. Um, you know, it reminds oneself of Bach copying out Vivaldi concertos. Copying mm. out music note by note is a wonderful way to, to understand. I mean, it's, it's barely music. It's sort of sound effects with a lot of F major and occasionally C major as well. But... I think that's that's all wrapped up in the sort of leitmotif for this program, which is about entertainment. Um, and how are you going to keep people interested when they're not exposed to this sort of music? And maybe you suggested from your experiences in, in America that that's not always easy and just doing lighter stuff at them isn't necessarily a way through. But for me, that was a, that was a really exciting piece. And the interesting thing about it, of course, is you know, King Singers have never pushed yourselves. You've never pushed yourselves out as an as part of the early music movement, historically informed performance. But you had the exact right voices for that. And we sit here with SATB. Um, but a Renaissance part layout is a countertenor voice, or a woman, or a boy, or or a castrato, or whatever on the top. But then a high tenor, a baritone. And bass. So you had the exact right voices to be doing a lot of this stuff anyway. Yeah, and I think that that actually is pure historical accident, purely and simply because the six of us <clears throat> who started off, we, we were the we were these six friends, and that was that particular vocal distribution. I don't think there was any uh, discussion on now what what should we you know what voices should we have. Um, we were fortunate to have known and worked with people like David Munro in the very early days. So we're well aware of the early music consort and what they were doing, which again was uh, a slightly parallel track. Um, but you're absolutely right. I don't think we ever regarded ourselves as part of the early music movement, purely and simply because we did so many other things other than early music. So it would, would have seemed presumptuous of us to have said, well, we're part of this as well. But of course, you know, any group that's been performing for 50 years, as the group now now has, has its own authenticity anyway. And, you know, people will write books about you in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, that has its own, own sense. You're a countertenor, literally a man who doesn't like tenors, to use the description from a Balfour Gardner Festival Chorus yeah. programme. <laughs> I noticed from the King Singers, um, I nearly said King Sisters, like yep. so many of those American. <laughs> I've seen the YouTube clip. Um, you wouldn't be the first. No, no, indeed. 
Now, I noticed from your alumni section on the on the Kingsingers website where you write, I was a monumentally unpromising boy treble <laughs> and was also described by Sir David Wilcox as the worst alto he'd ever had in his choir, King, King's Cambridge. I mean, just slightly leaving that aside, singing countertenor, I mean, the way vocal folds work as a countertenor, I think, I remember Nick, Nick Clapton telling me about this once, there's a man with an extraordinary yeah. robust yeah. technique. Um, the way they work versus how my normal chest voice, the modal voice works, uh, are not the same thing. And I found it exhausting running a rehearsal in my baritone voice, speaking and trying to sing at the same time. How did you manage this fragile instrument over 25 years of often brutal touring? Um, I think that... Uh, I I was always quite a um, healthy, fit person. I used to do a lot of sport, so I played one or two sports to quite a good level, and carried on um, while in the early days of the group as well. So I think probably physically, uh, maybe I was fairly robust anyway, but possibly um, also in the seventies I took up something called the Alexander technique. Mm. which I found hugely helpful on tour in helping helping uh, the body to um, really reorder itself so that I was ready kind of for the next uh, thing. And as time went on, we also gradually were able, uh, because we had a little bit, a tiny bit more clout than in the early days, to organise our tours so that they were not as brutal as they had been to start with. When you're, you know, young, you could... To sort of cope with most things, um, but as time went on, one had to take a little more care. Um, and in fact, I think when we started off, we described ourselves as a group in their early, in their late twenties. That's right. That was the publicity material. After about fifteen years, I think we thought that was a bit out of date, so we described ourselves as a group in their early thirties. But <laughs> so such was the passage when, of time. When Anna Crooks and I are feeling tired, we remember the uh, the line from our biography: "This dynamic young ensemble and." It's it's our fortieth anniversary in four years' time, right. and I think we're we're with 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 Python, and I think the tour is going to be called "We're Not Dead Yet." Um. <laughs> Monteverdi, that sounds like Stanford. When you retired from the group, you wrote the business of music making at the highest level that seemed so important at the time, as indeed it was then, has yielded a rich harvest of irony, humour, downright silliness and huge enjoyment at being a part of all that. And so we're back a little bit to humour, which is a very British thing. We're off is off to Germany fairly shortly to do a programme that mixes, it's called... Um, Tears and laughter, I think, not our yeah. choice actually, but but that's that's what they're doing. And th- th- certainly, if you can see yourself from outside, English humour is a thing, um, although rarely mixed into the to the the music. I'm just wondering what my question is. Well, I'm still I'm still back on this entertainment a little thing. I mean, on a recent episode of Coral Chihuahua, I asked each of the seven young singers what they'd like to be doing in five years, and Ailsa Campbell, one of them, is a soprano, said making choral music more of an entertainment for audiences, which is, of course, what you always did. But with dwindling numbers of children being exposed to music and singing in schools, despite fantastic charities fighting the fight against this, um, it does mean that classical audiences overall, especially post-Covid with numbers still not back to where they were, I mean, I just wonder whether you have any thoughts on how you see the world of choral concerts, not church music, which seems in some ways quite healthy, how we can make that a thing again. Yes, I uh, I agree with you. I think the, the the problem is that the word entertainment can carry some rather um, frivolous connotations, but I think that it, it is the right word to use because I think any musician has to nowadays, with all the conditions you've just said, <clears throat> to have an eye to how it, what one can't be uncompromising and say, right, I just want to do wall-to-wall Shimanovsky and that's it. I think one has to have an eye to imaginative concert programme planning, which is actually, uh, it's not too difficult to embrace that concept. It's 
difficult to actually plan a program so that it is both serious, meaningful, and as well engaging and therefore entertaining for the audience. But probably that does have to happen. I agree audiences coming through in terms of the young is a worry. But then you look at maybe some organisations which have had, uh, should we say, mature audiences for years and years and years. And they always have been and probably always will be. So, you know, one says, well, look at the age profile of our audience. But then you say, yeah, but it's been like that for 50, 60 years. It's true, isn't it? Um, but I still worry. I mean, uh, which of us has the time while we have children, uh, which has, has time and money to go to a concert in the evening? And yes, I think that's that's a thing. But when you talk to people about classical music, you know, it's, oh, oh that that's opera. I mean, the, the level of awareness at it. I was talking to my godfather, who has no interest in classical music at all, but he'd still sung in Messiah at one occasion when he was at school. And I suppose... I'm trying to tell myself it's just different. I mean, the undergraduates that come up to York don't have my knowledge that I did at that age about the things I'm interested in, but they have an immense knowledge of, of other things. Yeah, yeah. But yet the numbers being exposed to it in school is still going down. So let's have a shout out for the schools that are working at it, state schools especially. Yes, yes, particularly so. I think that, I mean, I may hold on to this possibly old-fashioned, outdated and no longer relevant rule that quality will always um, have its day. And certainly going any time that I've been to a concert recently, which is a choral concert, if it's a top outfit, which is really, really good, invariably it will be full. Now, maybe the number of those kind of choirs is dwindling, um, but while it, it carries on, I think quality will still continue to, to win out. Obviously, it's all suffered a grievous blow over the last two or three years with COVID, and it was, it's been a very difficult time for everybody. But one would love to think that it would come back. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm finding that, that young people are being much more uh, adventurous. You think of Sansara, they're very interested yes. in mental health. So when we're talking about entertainment, we're not talking about gags at the end no, of the concert. No. We're talking about thinking what it's like to be in an audience to experience music yeah. and whether that's using text. We've just finished our Rewilding the Wasteland programme or using technology. I showed Talis in Wonderland from a few years ago or some of these things. I mean, you say dwindling number. I might disagree with you there in that there are an awful lot of people wanting to do it, but the, the money thing gets in the way. Yes. Yes. Um, I'm about to go to a concert round the corner from you actually tonight mm -hmm. with a young, I don't know whether they call themselves semi-pro, but a, a very good young ensemble, really interesting programme yeah. in a small church. Um, I'm hoping it'll be sold out, but it's 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 difficult. Anyway, um, I don't want to finish on a negative note. I, I did want to finish with something a little bit, you know, if people are still listening by this stage. I wanted to play one of your... Uh, commissions because the King Singer's contribution to contemporary choral music is enormous. The number of pieces you've commissioned over over fifty years. Um, what would you like to play some of? Um, gosh, that's a, a difficult question because there's so much of it. When <clears throat> for our twenty fifth anniversary, a, a list was compiled. This is the twenty fifth anniversary, let alone the fiftieth, of all the contemporary pieces which we commissioned, and I was. I was absolutely astonished to think that that was the case and there are lots that I'd never thought about again or had completely forgotten about. Um, but one of the giants to me of uh, contemporary music who was uh, gracious enough to write us something <clears throat> was George Ligeti. And he did a ser series of uh, six madrigals for us and one of them is just a very simple setting of the alphabet which I think is is brilliant. Fantastic. Well, we'll finish with that. Um, as to Hume, you are my hero. I will be you when I grow up. And see how I've matured, because I used to want to be Simon Carrington when I grow up, your baritone colleague, but now I want to be Alistair Hume. I better start practising the double bass. <laughs>
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Just before you go, another reminder to try listening on Patreon, which costs just a few pounds per month. Or, if you prefer, you can very simply make a one-off donation. You can actually do either via coralchihuahua.com. Thanks. <laughs>